Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is Thursday, January 19th, 2012. Our guest tonight, our first guest will be David J. Hansen, Ph.D., who is Professor Emeritus at SUNY Potsdam. Uh, He's uh, been involved in the field of alcohol studies for a long time, and he's got a lot of really interesting background. He's going to give us our second guest will be Sarah Bowen, who's from the uh, University of Seattle, University of Washington, Seattle Addictive Behaviors Research Program, and she will be talking about mindfulness-based relapse prevention. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to our website, hamsnetwork.org slash book. And our guest, uh, David uh, J. Hansen, Ph.D., is here already waiting. I kind of introduced him, so I'm going to bring him right on. How are you doing tonight, David? Well, doing fine. Thank you, Ken. Well, it's great to have you here. Tell me a little bit about your background. I mean, I've, I've seen your CV. You've been in alcohol studies for a long time. Right. Actually began, uh, it's hard to imagine, uh, but of course I started when I was uh, two years old, but <laughs> I've uh, been doing it for uh, over 40 years now. I've been uh, conducting research uh, in, in the area of alcohol, and I've been particularly interested in what we can do to reduce alcohol-related problems, and, um, and that's where I really am. And your website is called Alcohol Problems and Solutions, and I saw this was one of the most sane websites on the Internet that has to do with alcohol, and I was very greatly impressed with it. And, uh, well, that's why I invited you to be on our advisory board. This is a, an advisory board member for everyone out there. Well, thanks little- for the kind words. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I- I'll tell you, there are a lot of readers who tell me what you've said, that uh, when they go out on the Internet to see what's available, uh, they tend to uh, come upon sites typically that really exaggerate, uh, that attempt to scare, uh, and that quite often provide uh, misinformation. Yeah, that's a real problem. A lot of uh, people... A lot of these sites are from treatment programs, and they're trying to scare up business, to use a little pun there. But they're really trying to scare people into buying their treatment programs and, you know, coming in and paying $30,000 for a month or something. Yes. Um, and one of the things I think is important for listeners is if they're considering a program, they really should look at the success rate. Um and unfortunately, very few places really provide a, uh, a success rate, and uh, and most of those that do uh, really give you a self-reported success rate. It would be a little mm-hmm. bit like my trying to grade, give myself a grade in, in, uh, in a physics course I'm taking. Uh, you really couldn't have a whole lot of uh, confidence in what grade I gave myself. Well, on this very topic, we did a show a few weeks back about St. Jude Retreat House, and I saw that you're on their board, and this is 
one of the few programs that we really feel like we would like to recommend. And the reason is because they do have an independent corporation that comes in and evaluates their success rates. That's right. Quite frankly, um, St. Jude's is the only program apparently that does that. Um, and um, and St. Jude's has an incredibly high success rate, and they measure it rather rigorously, incidentally. they Something like 62% success rate. And they measure it in a way that I wouldn't. They measure it in terms of people who have successfully completely stopped drinking or doing drugs. Uh, I would consider it a success if a person uh, considered himself or herself a problem drinker and went in and learned to moderate uh, the drinking. Uh, And, of course, some guests uh, who take the program choose to do that. And they're successful, but... For our statistical purposes, they're considered failures. So the measurement is an extremely rigorous one, and it also has to be corroborated uh, by employers or other people as well, not simply the self-reports of the people who have graduated from the program. Yes, I saw that. I think that the next report they do, they said they might uh, do a separate count on the on the people that achieved moderation and include that separately as well in the report next time they do it. Yes, um, and one of the important things is uh, we have this idea, and it's really ideology, that alcoholics cannot drink in moderation. But the interesting thing is that a U.S. federal government survey, population survey, in the entire United States found that a very substantial proportion of people actually did that, have done that, uh, and they've done it uh, by themselves. Mm-hmm. That that sounds just impossible to us, but that's what the federal government has found and has reported. Um, so uh, one of the problems we've had is that uh, we've had decades of research in which people have reported, researchers have reported, that a number of alcoholics are drinking in moderation. Well, what happens is that the people who are more ideologically oriented say, well, then they couldn't have been alcoholics because an alcoholic is a person who, who cannot drink in moderation. You see, so they've sort of just defined that problem away. But the good news is that a lot of people, a lot of alcoholics, uh, have in fact learned uh, to drink alcohol in moderation. Yeah, this is true. That's available information that's available from the NIAAA spectrum. The article is called Alcoholism Isn't What It Used to Be. And it says about half of people that recover from alcohol dependence do so by cutting back instead of quitting. It's about 50-50. Right. And uh, and a lot of them have done it without going into any program at all, uh, which is, again, something that's hard for us to understand, I suspect. But, you know, there's a lot of evidence that, uh, that alcoholism is not a disease. It is a, it is a result of a number of choices that were made in the past. And if this is so, then it would easily explain why so many people are able to cut back, because they, you know, they they simply decide and they make a number of choices that lead them in the direction of drinking in a safer way. It's really a harm reduction approach, and they're able to do it themselves. Um, but of course, there are plenty of programs around for folks who who are not able to do that, and uh, although I'm somewhat biased by, uh, because of my association with the St. Jude's, 
um, St. Jude's has, has really proven, it seems to me, that uh, you can achieve success without buying into a disease model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I saw that from St. Jude's. They take it entirely as a learned behavior and don't talk about a disease at all. Right, and the people who come there are guests. They're not patients. Um, and the program is not a therapeutic program at all. It is an educational program. It is purely an educational program. And people learn uh, basically how to reprogram their thinking uh, and, and how to um, uh, actually see the world somewhat differently and realize that they are that they do have power. I mean, one of the problems with 12-step programs tends to be that they teach powerlessness mm-hmm. and dependence. And um, and uh, St. Jude's and some other programs teach people that they are, in fact, powerful. They they have the ability to change themselves. And incidentally, one of the other old problems with twelve step programs, they they have the they teach the belief that if a person has a slip, they're trying to abstain, and they have a slip, uh, that they are going to inevitably go on a binge. They're going to lose mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. Well, this would be about like telling a, a, a person who's on a diet that if they uh, they slip up and, and have a cookie, that they uh, inevitably must eat the entire box. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because it, well, it's tempting to eat the whole box, but we do have the power to say, oops, you know, I had a cookie, I shouldn't have done that, and put the box away. Well, it's one of those things. There's a saying that's around 12-step programs that if you pick up again, you'll pick up exactly where you left off. Right. And sometimes I even hear that your disease is progressing even while you're abstaining. And we've talked about uh, earlier on the show how dangerous this can be if you're talking about people that have done opiates. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when people get detoxified from opiates, the tolerance goes way down. If they pick up again where they left off, they get an overdose. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so here's a case in which the teaching can actually be counterproductive. Yeah, there's an awful lot of overdose death from uh, people that that have used opiates that when they're released from treatment or when they're released from prison, and it seems to be because they try to use the same amount that they did, you know, when they were stopped from using. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is one of the, the important uh, things about harm reduction approaches is I think, first off, they're non-ideological, so they're open to empirical evidence. Um, but they also take people where they are, and they try to move them to a, more, to a safer behavior. Uh, and so they're not moralistic, and they're not condemning. Um, they're, uh, they're really positive in their approach. Now, our own HAMS approach it has some similarities to St. Jude, because, you know, we... Uh, we don't talk about a disease. Uh, we realize there may be some genetic influences, but the thing is you can't change your genes. Your genes are the same no matter what. There's nothing you can do to change your genes. You can change your environment. You can change your behaviors. These are things that, you know, you can change. So these are things we encourage people to think about changing. Well, that's right. Um, and it's it's fortunate that it is not programmed into our genes. Otherwise, uh uh, you know, we would uh, we would be automatons. We would be helpless, which of course some some people teach us we are. 
but um, I think all the evidence is that we can change it. Now, it can sometimes be very difficult, but mm-hmm. it, it, it can work. And, uh, and the interesting thing is, even if you, re- even if you accept the disease theory, um, one problem that you have is if you look at a program like St. Jude's, which has a 62% documented uh, success rate, um, it works. Uh, so that's a problem. I mean, it works. And it's high, it has a higher success rate than 12-step and other programs do. So uh, I think that would give a person um, pause to at least consider the possibility that uh, that if we're alcoholic or if we're addicted to drugs, that uh, that we can change and that um, we're not fated to be forever uh, powerlessness, but power, powerless, and uh, we can, in fact, change our, our behaviors. It's a very pragmatic approach to take it that way. And uh, I also want to mention, uh, since we have mentioned AA and 12-step programs, that you know, there's no way that we are opposed to people that are succeeding with that method. No, that, not at if, all. If that works for you, if it feels good, if it fits you, you know, we're entirely supportive of you. But Absolutely. But we see, we see that there are many people it does not fit. In fact, the majority of people. That's right. I think uh, that uh, A World Services uh, claims that it has about a 5% success rate. And that's good for the, that 5%, and it's even better for them in the sense that they don't have to pay anybody for anything. Uh, you know, they contribute maybe some coffee or something at the AA meetings. And I'm always amazed that there are some people who really um, are very critical of AA. They say that uh, that people go from an addiction to alcohol to an addiction to AA. Well, uh, I don't think an addiction to AA has ever uh, really killed anybody, whereas an addiction to alcohol might uh, be rather harmful for your health if you uh, persist abusing alcohol long enough. Uh, and, but I was surprised when I first started teaching a course on alcohol that there were a number of uh, students who were really quite antagonistic to AA. Uh, I say, if AA works for you, fine. Uh, but if a 5% success rate uh, isn't nearly so good as the 62% uh, rate, that's for sure. Well, I was much more antagonistic uh, in my past. But uh, that was, you know, after attempting to go to AA and winding up drinking more and, you know, actually having my winding up with life-threatening withdrawals after going to AA. For me, it was such a bad fit that it made the problems worse. Mm -hmm. And I I became quite, you know, adamantly opposed to AA for a while after that. But then I was working in needle exchange and other harm reduction programs and working side by side with many people who are members of NA, I mean, about half people, half the people I've encountered in needle exchange seem to be NA members. And so, you know, it made me, you know, look at this differently and, you know, accept everyone where they are at. If you are doing good with AA, good for you. And if that's not where you're at, then we're offering an alternative. There are many people offering alternatives out there. That's right, um, and uh, well, I think that's one of the, the good approaches. Uh, one of the components of, of harm reduction is that it is, as I said, so open-minded and willing to um, 
is look at the evidence and not say, um, for example, well, uh, you know, if you've become successful in moderating your drinking that you obviously weren't an alcoholic because alcoholics can't drink in moderation. Uh, that's what I would call an ideological approach. But uh, the harms uh, and other uh, harm reduction people are um, so pragmatic and, and non-ideological. For example, you look at, say, uh, drinking among underage people. Uh, one approach is to say, well, we've simply got to clamp down and, and get tougher and tougher uh, against violators. Uh, that's, say, people who are drinking and are under the age. The other approach is to say, well, most people are probably going to do that and continue to do that. It's, it's silly of us to try uh, to prevent this completely. So what we need to do is to teach people how to engage in that behavior in a, uh, in a safer way. And, uh, and I think you know, if you are really concerned about people, it seems to me that you'd be concerned about reducing harm rather than um, simply trying to prevent alcohol from touching their lips. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting point. Um, you know, there's one problem with young people and uh, alcohol. It's in the law here, which, I mean, some people have thought that they could host a party for the young people to come in so that they could drink safely and not have to drive, and that happens to be against the law, and people have been arrested for that. Well, that's right, uh, and there is no state in which a person can serve a, an underage person who is not their own child. Um, it's simply illegal, and uh, I think it's very foolish to do that. Quite frankly, I think the law should be changed, but it's currently illegal, and uh, to do it, therefore, I think is foolish, and the person subjects him or herself to uh, uh, civil and criminal uh, uh, consequences. Um, so um, uh, that's now. On the other hand, people often don't realize that they can legally serve their own offspring within their home and sometimes elsewhere. Uh, this is true in a number of states, and uh, where it is legal, I think that the evidence is that it's, um, it's a wise approach. There was a study that was uh, uh, conducted uh, several years ago, and it was funded by the, uh, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and the uh, researchers found that when young people, when underage persons had consumed alcohol within their family home that they were less much less likely to abuse alcohol um when they were not in the home uh, they were less likely to binge drink or to uh uh drive while drinking those kinds of dangerous behaviors so drinking in the home under the parents directions um when it's legal uh, really helps young people learn about drinking what's appropriate and, and what's not, how, how much they can safely consume and so on. And that's why I think that we should consider uh, in our society the possibility of a drinking learner permit analogous to a, a driving learner's permit. Uh, because you can imagine uh, what a 
dangerous uh, world our highways would be if we told young people that um, uh, driving is very dangerous, which of course it is, and we told them that it requires uh, some emotional maturity and it requires knowledge of the rules of the road and it requires ideally that people learn under the tutelage of an experienced driver. But we say, well, we're not going to teach you the rules of the road because we don't want to encourage you to go out and drive and we're not going to help you. And then when you turn 21, we hand you the keys to the car and say, okay, now we prefer you take public transportation because it's safer, but if you insist on driving, try not to kill yourself or others. That's exactly Mm -hmm. what we do with drinking. Mm -hmm. And we say you can't touch it, you can't drink it, stay away from it, and it's horrible and it's a poison and all these horrible things. And then we say, okay, 21, now you can drink. And... And we're surprised that some folks have uh, difficulty. Mm-hmm. There's some evidence, it seems, that uh, people, young people, rebel. I mean, I think there was a study that showed that even though the majority were more likely to follow their parents' example, there were quite a large number that would rebel. And when their parents would abstain, be abstainers, they would drink. When their parents were very heavy drinkers, they would rebel and decide not to drink at all. <laughs> uh, uh, several decades ago, I I found that to be the case in a, in a large study of, of thousands of students, uh, and I did, ha- I did happen to notice that uh, uh, that was a common pattern. It would sort of go one way or the other, um, and uh, that is fascinating. Um, but we know that societies in which uh, people learn uh, to drink in the family um, tend to have lower um, drinking rate, uh, drinking problem rates. And uh, uh, but yet we do fight that uh, in our society. And I think one reason is because uh, the U.S. along with uh, with Ireland have very very high rates of uh, of abstainers. And of course we have. Uh, had a, uh, a temperance background. They had the national prohibition for uh, almost, uh, uh, well, you know, from 1920 to 1933, and it was actually almost 14 years. Um, and uh, we even had state-wide uh, prohibition uh, for a period of about a, a third of a century after that, so in some states. And, of course, we even have a substantial number of dry counties even today. Um, so there is a lot of uh, anti-alcohol sentiment and, and a lot of anti-alcohol legislation. Um, unfortunately, those tend not to be very helpful in in teaching and in helping uh, people learn how to drink appropriately. Oh, I was just going to mention in the same study that I was just talking about, they they found that uh, when the parents were moderate drinkers then in most cases the children were also moderate drinkers and they didn't go to either extreme of abstaining or, you know, being, uh, you know, drinking to excess because they didn't really see that moderate drinking was something to rebel against. That's right. That's right. Um, and it's seen then as just a natural, normal thing. You know, it's not an, it's not some magic elixir that's going to make them popular with uh, other people. Uh, on the other hand, it's not some dangerous poison. Uh, and uh, sometimes I think that, for example, with smoking cigarettes, that um, that uh, young people will smoke knowing it's dangerous to show how tough they are. 
mm-hmm. you know, a certain bravado. And, of course, people could do that with drinking as well. If they if they've been taught that uh, that uh, alcohol is a poison and it's dangerous, uh, that may encourage them to drink to show how tough and and carefree they really are. Now that's an interesting one that you mentioned the smoking. I've uh, known several people and I've had the same experience myself. That you know they said you know these anti-smoking ads just drive them to smoke. <laughs> And that's frustrating when you, when you, you know, I happen to think smoking is, is not a wise thing to do. Uh, and I, I object to the idea that smoking and, and, and uh, drinking alcohol are both considered, uh, we, we say we have sin taxes on them. Well, the thing is alcohol, when consumed in moderation, really enhances health and promotes longevity, whereas uh, you can't say the same for uh, smoking. You can't say, well, just smoking in moderation benefits you because it doesn't. Uh, even smoking uh, infrequently doesn't help a person at all. Uh, so um, I don't see them as um, as at all comparable uh, in, in most ways. Well, personally, uh, I used to be a very heavy cigarette smoker. I rolled my own and they were unfiltered, so one of my cigarettes was the same as about four Marlboros, and I smoked 25 of those every day. So it was like 100 Marlboros a day, and I decided to quit cigarettes, but I like to have a cigar once a week, and I consider it relatively safe. I don't have to inhale a cigar mm-hmm. to get the, the effect, so the studies have shown you know, less than a cigar a day is, is relatively safe. Mm-hmm. But we don't. Well, of course, uh, you aren't inhaling. Maybe you're not you inhaling, inhaling at all. Mm-hmm. right? Which is which is the biggest problem, you know? Yeah. I think you could uh, also consider uh, snuff and uh, chewing tobacco to be relatively relatively safe as well. Yes, and some of them are much safer than others. The Swedish snooze was studied by the Royal College of Physicians and found completely non-carcinogenic. Uh, whereas some of the American uh, things like Copenhagen and Skoll, actually, they are carcinogenic, but they're not as carcinogenic as cigarettes. Mm-hmm. But but we aren't telling uh, we aren't telling the young people, you know, uh, use Swedish snus or have a cigar a week or, you know, have an have an e-cigarette, an electronic cigarette instead. Mm-hmm. We're just telling them it's it's totally bad and you must never do it, and that's it. Yes. That's a that's a problem that that we have, and I think it's kind of a cognitive problem, a brain processing problem. It's so much easier to say good bad rather than uh, gray, a little bit lighter, a little bit darker uh, on, on the white to black or whatever continuum. Um, and it's so it's so much easier just to say don't do something rather than well if you do it do it in moderation uh, and. Uh, and, and it's almost like we're afraid to trust people. Uh, we're afraid to let people make some choices for themselves. We just tell them, don't do this. Uh, and, um, of course, that doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it works. It's, you know, that's very authoritarian in many ways. Oops, I'm sorry. I think I'm sort of losing you. I said the United States is very authoritarian in many ways. Yes, yes. And uh, well, of course, the uh, the harm reduction uh, approach really 
began in, if I understand the history of it correctly, in the Netherlands. Uh, it was very popular there and, and brought uh, brought to this country. And uh, uh, harm reduction seems so eminently reasonable to me. I don't know why it uh, hasn't completely swept the country and, and, and basically converted everyone. Uh, because it is logical, it is um, uh, it's really evidence based. Um, it's non ideological and uh, and it's effective. I think those are hard things to beat. I agree with you. Um, we got a couple minutes to finish up here. It looks like our second guest is calling in right now. So. Um, to, what would you like to leave us with as a parting word? Uh, harm reduction is good. <laughs> uh, I really believe that uh, that's the approach we should be taking in our society toward uh, uh, alcohol, drugs, and uh, a number of other behaviors as well. Okay. The website is Alcohol Problems and Solutions. Just Google Alcohol Problems and Solutions, and it will come Right up, our guest has been David J. Hansen, uh, Professor Emeritus at uh, SUNY Potsdam. Thank you very much for being our guest tonight. It's been my pleasure, Ken. Thanks a lot. Okay, we're going to bring our next guest on right now. Hello, Sarah, is that you? Yes, it is. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very good. This is uh, Sarah Bowen, Ph.D. She is the co-author of Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention for Addictive Behaviors. Um, she's with the University of Washington in Seattle, which is where our good friend, uh, the late Dr. Alan Marlatt, uh was based for many years uh, to the end of his life. And uh, well, let me ask you a little bit about the book. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm switching gears still. Um, uh, your program, the Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention Program, is this a time-limited program? Is it very structured? Uh, as written, it is. Um, just to give you a little context of how it emerged, um, we are a uh, clinical research lab. Um, I did my uh, graduate work with Dr. Alan Marlatt, so uh, a lot of it was running clinical trials of behavioral interventions for substance abuse. So we were, our intention was to create a protocoled treatment uh, that we could study. Um, so that is why it is indeed uh, time limited. We had to, we had certain strictures just because of the the research context. So as written, it's an eight week outpatient program. That said. Um, Others who are applying this in clinical settings that are outside of the research context have uh, certainly found some some flexibility with that. Let's start a little bit with the research. This has been uh, research, and what are the results? Did you find it's effective? Mm, mm -hmm, indeed. Um, we began by looking at, uh, well, there are sort of two parallel lines of research happening in Alan Marlett's lab. He was looking at um, meditation and its effectiveness with people with substance use disorders, and then also looking at more traditional Western cognitive behavioral therapy and developing a relapse prevention program based on CBT principles. 
Um, now, when I came along in about 2002, we started looking at a way to integrate these two lines of research. So we began to design a program, which is what we're speaking about now, mindfulness-based relapse prevention, that integrated these two traditions and ran a couple of trials. So the initial trial was um, at a treatment agency that was serving um, primarily folks with probably about half court-mandated, um, several with polysubstance use. The primary substances were alcohol, crack cocaine, uh, and methamphetamine use. A lot of folks uh, directly from drug court who were mandated to treatment. So um, typically kind of a, a challenging population. Um, so we came in there and wanted to see if we might uh, offer them something that would be an alternative to a more 12-step based approach. So that was our first trial. So we randomized folks either to our mindfulness program or to continue in their treatment as usual. And we did indeed find that there were some beneficial um, additive effects of the mindfulness program where people were using less uh, over the follow-up period as well as um, maintaining abstinence. So we found both uh, abstinence-based results and also more harm reduction-based results in terms of folks who were using were actually using less. Okay. You said there were, there were a couple studies. That was the first study? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was the first study. Um, the second study is currently underway, and what we're doing in this study is our intention is to look at a longer follow-up period. That first study was really a pilot trial where we followed folks up for four months, um, and in this current study, we're following them up for a year. And we're also comparing uh, them with another group that is a cognitive behavioral relapse prevention group. So we have three groups in this study. We have the treatment as usual, which is a 12-step based program. We have the cognitive behaviorally based relapse prevention program, and then we have the mindfulness program. And our intention is not necessarily to see who's better, but to look at for whom these treatments are more effective. You know, maybe there are some folks who do better or some types of folks who do better in one of these treatments than the other. And we're also interested in looking at the different mechanisms. So how do these different treatments work, and are they working differently from one another? Okay. Um, the, in the in the in the mindfulness program you have outlined in the book, mm -hmm. uh, you include uh, cognitive behavioral techniques. There, did you include all mm -hmm. of the ones from the from the cognitive behavioral relapse uh, prevention that was worked on earlier? Do we include them all? Yes. Was that the question? Um, no, no, not explicitly. I think it's more the underlying um, kind of theory and intention of CBT that's really present in the program. So combining very concrete behavioral skills and looking at some thoughts that um, may be less helpful in, in, uh, in maintaining um, treatment gains. Uh, so that that sort of cognitive behavioral approach is interwoven throughout the program. Okay, can we look at the program um, as it progresses, so week by week? What, sure. What's in the first section of the program? Sure, that's a that's a great question. Um, well, first I want to say that this program is largely based on um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is John Kabat-Zinn's work with chronic pain and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is uh, Zindel, Siegel, and colleagues' work for uh, preventing uh, depression relapse. So we built upon the structure of, of their programs quite heavily. Um, and 
so the first session is really about introducing the idea of mindfulness. A lot of people come in with ideas about meditation thinking that they have to be able to sit still for an hour and they are not supposed to have any thoughts or it's something that, you know, is not accessible to them. And so we really try to disabuse people of that in the first session by just doing some very simple exercises that are not sitting in lotus position for an hour, you know, focusing mm-hmm. on the breath that are a little bit less intimidating and really uh, highlighting the fact that the mindfulness approach is really about paying attention mm-hmm. and learning how to pay attention in our lives. So we start with a very simple exercise as they do in the previous programs I mentioned, MBSR and MBCT, which involves just eating a raisin. So it's a seemingly mundane activity that most of us would do without paying much attention. You know, we pop food in our mouths, we chew it, it's over. Uh, so we, we slow that process down, and it kind of has two purposes, learning how to pay attention to things that we typically don't pay attention to, and also really um, learning how unaware we often are. People are usually pretty surprised at how much they discover when they slow down and pay attention to an object they would typically ignore. So it's sort of also bringing awareness to how unaware we typically are in our day-to-day lives. So that's the first session. Um, And then we also focus on what we call a body scan exercise, again, brought brought in from the previous two programs I mentioned. And that is just simply learning in the same way we paid attention to the raisin to pay attention to our bodies, which most of us typically don't do as well. So we just spend 30 to 45 minutes being guided through an exercise in which clients are asked to just pay attention to the sensations that are currently happening in their body, starting with their toes and moving all the way up uh, into the top of their head. And again, this is has two purposes. One is to begin to learn how to pay attention to something that's you know, always in the present moment, the body, and also to notice how often the mind wanders and how we are typically... Uh, very much not present and not aware of something that we carry with us wherever we go, our bodies. Okay. The session two here is titled Awareness of Triggers and Craving. And tell me a little Mm -hmm. bit about that. Mm -hmm. Session two is is one of my favorites. Um, We really kind of jump right in in session two and start to work with how these practices are going to be helpful in day-to-day lives and specifically with um, situations that are tricky or have been tricky in the past. So we do an exercise in the second session called Urge Surfing. And this is based on the relapse prevention, on Marlatt's relapse prevention work, but we've taken it and really enriched it with mindfulness. So we actually have clients um, bring to mind a situation in which they have been previously triggered or tend to get triggered, whether that's to use substances or they get triggered in some other way, it doesn't really matter. What we have them do is, instead of uh, reacting habitually, which we often do when we're uncomfortable, we reach for something that's going to make us feel better, or we try and escape, or we shut down, we ask them to stay with the experience. So they're kind of just staying right on that edge without sort of jumping in or recoiling back, but really just staying right with that moment that feels intolerable and feels like that's the place where you might want to react by for example, reaching for a substance, and to see what it's like to really stay with that um, and kind of ride it out. And the the surfing metaphor is 
referring to the tendency of, of those urges and cravings to arise definitely and build in strength, but then we typically don't stay with them. We typically stop them by reaching for something and making it stop. But what we learn by staying with them is that if we stay and just don't do anything but just kind of ride it out, eventually that urge or that craving will naturally subside. So by doing this, we learn that we are actually able to stay with these experiences, even though they're very uncomfortable and even though our mind is telling us to escape, we learn that we're actually able to stay with discomfort without reacting, which is sort of at the crux of the whole program, which is why I say it's one of my favorite sessions. So does fighting the urge tend to intensify it? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, there's a lot of research on, on that. You know, there's a whole school of research on thought suppression. Oh, so there's a number of studies, both in substance abuse and, and generally, that show that the more we try to suppress uh, specifically thoughts, there's also some research in, in emotion as well, the more we try to suppress it, make it go away, uh, the more we tend to actually end up intensifying it. It's called the rebound effect. It typically comes back, and it often comes back stronger. So not only is it ineffective, but it um, it can be exhausting going through life trying to fight experiences that are arising. So what we're trying to do here is say, you know, this may not be what you wanted. It may not be what you asked for. You may not want to be experiencing what you're experiencing. And can you stay with it and be compassionate and be patient and maybe even be curious about this experience? So changing your attitude towards this experience rather than wishing it were different. So instead of fighting it or giving into it, you're observing it. Exactly, exactly. So we use it, you know, we use a number of metaphors. The surfing is one metaphor. One that I really like that we bring in um also in session 2 is the the mountain meditation. And the idea of that is to bring into ourselves the qualities that we might see in a mountain. So that sense of groundedness and dignity and uprightness no matter what's happening around us. So the the meditation um, speaks about weather patterns that happen. You know, it might be stormy, it might be sunny, it might be pelted with sleet, it might have beautiful flowers on it. Whatever's happening, the mountain can just remain its essential self. It doesn't have to be, it's not whipped around by weather patterns. So we're asking people to try that themselves and have this sense of rootedness and groundedness no matter what may be going on around them or maybe even inside them in terms of emotions and thoughts. And and as you said, observing that rather than um, having to get involved in it or try and fix it or try and make it go away. Okay. Uh, before we go on to the next sessions, do you have people do homework? <laughs> yes, um, we we do. We ask people to... You know, we actually call it home practice because people have such negative associations often with homework. So we mm-hmm. we ask people to practice as best they can um, to practice the meditation exercises they're learning in session in the weeks between the sessions. And, again, the idea here is we, we've been practicing doing one thing our whole lives, most of us, which is reacting. And we're asking people to change the way that they are fundamentally responding to things in their lives by not being reactive but responding skillfully versus habitually. So that takes more than two hours a week. (laughs) So what we're saying is, you know, we need to practice this 
every day to try and kind of build it into our lives. So we give clients a number of exercises. Um, we give them CDs with full meditations and say, try and practice these uh, as best you can. And we also give a number of exercises that are more what we call informal or daily life practice, which might be, you know, noticing next time you get sort of annoyed or triggered by something and stopping and observing the sensations in your body and the thoughts that are going on in your mind. It might be something as simple as that. Now, are there specific forms of meditation that you use, like concentrating on the breath or saying a mantra? <laughs> or <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, there, you know, there are a number of different meditation traditions, as, as you know. Um, these practices are pulled almost exclusively from the Vipassana meditation tradition. And Vipassana um, means it's usually translated as insight or seeing things as they are. So it's a it's a very simple practice. It doesn't involve a mantra. The the focus instead is on what is happening at the present time. So we often use the breath because the breath is always present. It's always happening. Um, so that's a, a good way to bring the mind back to the present every time it wanders. We also use the body, as I mentioned before, observing sensations in the body. The intention is to um, stay with what is actually happening rather than what the mind is telling us is happening. We often live in the past, in the present, or in our thoughts and fantasy land. And the intention with the Vipassana practices are to come back and see for ourselves what's actually happening. And are these meditations that you do while you're sitting still, or are they things that you can do while you're moving around and doing activities? Both, all of it, which is a wonderful thing about meditation is, you know, as I said earlier, a lot of people have this oftentimes uh, conception of, of, of meditation as sitting in one position for a very long time, wrapped in robes and such. And and the thing about meditation is it it really is just paying attention. So we have a number of exercises. We have some lying down in the beginning. We have some that are formal sitting. We have some that are walking. Um, as I mentioned, there's the informal meditation practices where you can meditate while you're drinking a cup of tea. All it means is paying attention to what you're doing as you're doing it rather than being caught up in the stories of the mind. So you can meditate really well. You can bring that meditative attention to, to any activity that you're doing throughout the day. Okay. Now let's go on and look at uh, Session 3, Mindfulness in Daily Life. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of builds on session two. So we're we're trying again to really fold these practices out into daily life so clients can see right away how this might be helpful for them. Um, otherwise, they won't practice. <laughs> so we continue to bring practices and exercises that we're doing in session and doing formally out into daily lives. So we have, you know, things like... Um, as I mentioned, the, the exercise of noticing when you're triggered. We'd have a, a exercise that we call the SOBER space that we introduce in session three. And SOBER is an acronym that stands for stop, observe, breath or breath awareness, expand and respond. So the idea here is that when we notice that we're being triggered or we feel a little bit reactive or really any time throughout the day, we're practicing stopping just where we are and observing what's happening. And we usually come to the body first because that's a good way to come back into the present moment and just observing what's happening without trying to change it. And then 
gathering attention to the breath as a way to ground back in the present and in the body, and then expanding awareness again to the situation that we're in, and then realizing that no matter what's happening in our minds, the thoughts that are happening, the urges that are happening, the sensations or emotions that are happening, we still have a choice and we can respond rather than react. Rather than going from our habitual uh, reactive ways, we can actually choose a response that's in our best interest. So in session three, we start to really fold that into uh a daily life practice and ask the clients to practice that. Just doing that, it can take a few seconds, you know, and doing that several times a day to just start getting used to responding differently to situations that previously have been potentially reactive. Okay. Session four is mindfulness in high-risk situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Session session four, um, again, we continue with this idea of mindfulness in daily life, but we start focusing on specific um, instances, whether they're people or places or or um, maybe geographical, you know, locations or, or triggers or whatever it might be that have have been high risk for folks in the past, and um, ask them to how they might be able to start bringing these practices into those typical high risk situations. Okay, I'm going to uh, jump out of the uh, sessions for a little bit, and we'll come mm-hmm. back to five through eight. Um, okay. I want to ask you a couple of things that are just occurring to me as we've been talking. Sure. And one is about people that want to practice moderate drinking, and uh, would it help them to be mindful of what they are drinking, to drink slowly mm-hmm. and to pay attention? And what do you think of that concept? I, I think it's a great question. Um, yeah, I think being mindful of anything is helpful, <laughs> um, and it's really interesting in talking about moderation. That you know, this program specifically is not explicitly abstinence-based. Basically, the idea here is to help people live the life that they want to live, rather than um, behaving in a way that's just reactive all the time. But really seeing what's happening, what I want, what are my values, and how can I adhere to those in a way that's um, going to help me live in accordance with my own values. So in the case of moderate drinking, I think that's a wonderful example where oftentimes, um, you know, when you slip over kind of to the to the edges of that and it becomes problematic drinking, there are often uh, reasons <laughs> underlying that, and many of them are sort of escape or reactive reasons, you know, wanting to not feel how I'm feeling or wanting to wanting some relief or wanting um, to feel um, some kind of escape. And uh, the mindfulness meditation can help us, uh, first of all, recognize what those drives are that might be underlying problematic use. Um, and find better ways to meet those needs so that we no longer need to be heavily drinking to feel relaxed. We may find that we no longer want to be heavily drinking because it's not actually serving us. So in terms of of moderation, you know, for some folks that that might be where they want to land and that might help them get there and keep their eye on, you know, how is this drinking serving me? When does it become a problem? When does it become sort of an escape versus something that I just enjoy? So I think it well, could be very helpful, yes. I was just thinking about sometimes people, you know, when they're drinking reactively, they quickly slam down some a few shots sure. of vodka to get a sure. really fast effect. 
instead of being mindful and, you know, tasting what they're drinking and, you know, <laughs> drinking slowly and, you know, enjoying the taste and seeing the gradual effect that it has. I mean, there's a, seems to me there's a way that you could do mindful drinking instead of reactive mm-hmm. drinking. Absolutely. And that, you know, that can, that can help um, get more of sort of the, the good things that we might enjoy about drinking and less of the more negative consequences that often come from, as you said, drinking sort of reactively and slamming drinks down for some other reason other than enjoyment. Do you see other ways that uh, mindfulness fits in with harm reduction? You know, I think that um, it's it really comes down to the, the the practice is about wisdom and seeing what's actually happening, seeing things clearly, and also about compassion. Um, and I think in that sense, it just goes right hand in hand with a harm reduction approach. So seeing clearly what is the the most realistic for any individual person versus um you know what someone else may want them to do but seeing okay what what am i able to do am i able to quit do i really want to quit do i really need to quit seeing that clearly first of all and then also having a um a non-judgmental um sort of non-dogmatic approach to change as well and saying so, you know what the, the therapist's values or ideas may not be what's right for the client. And coming in with a very non-judgmental approach of, you know, I'm here to help make this client's life better in whatever way makes most sense for where that person is right now and what that person wants. And if it's abstinence, I'm on board. If it's harm reduction, I'm on board. So in terms of the um, the mindfulness approach, um, it it really is about helping people be happier and suffer less. And if harm reduction makes sense for that person, then absolutely. It's not really so much about the outcome as about what does the day-to-day quality of life look like for someone and how can we help them uh, experience more joy and freedom and less suffering. Okay. Let's go back and look at the sessions. We're on session five now, acceptance Mm -hmm. and skillful action. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is an interesting sort of dialectic, this this balance between acceptance and change. And so we really, in session five, look at uh, acceptance as a very active process rather than passive. Acceptance doesn't mean I accept everything as it is and therefore I just sit back and let it all happen. What acceptance means is, in this context, is I'm accepting what's already happened in the past, and I'm accepting what's happening right now because it's already happening. So you know, you can kind of come back even to the um, to the serenity prayer and accepting the things that I can't change, and what those are is the past and what's happening in this moment. I may be able to change what happens in the next moment, but what's happening right now is already happening right now. So spending a lot of time fighting that, like I wish this weren't happening, I don't like that this is happening, I wish the past didn't happen the way it happened is a very um, tragic waste of our time and energy. And until we can really accept where we are right now and what's happening right now, we don't have the freedom and the flexibility to make changes because we're so busy looking back or being angry about what's happening. So session five, we um, we explore that balance. Well, the serenity prayer can be a useful guide. I 
I saw some people that got too caught up in the first clause, though, and, you know, they would, uh, this is my personal experience. People would tell me, you have to accept that. You have to accept that. And then it says, what can I change? Whether or not you go to AA meetings is the only thing you can change. Everything else you accept. You know, and I felt Mm. some people got uh, in traditional 12-step programs into just uh, accepting too much and not actually getting to the same clause and changing what they could change. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's that that final part, the wisdom to know the difference is so key. <laughs> there are things we can change, and there are things we can't. And we open up the discussion in Session 5 just by asking them, you know, like, what are we accepting when we talk about acceptance? What are we accepting? What can you actually change and what can you not actually change? What do you have control over and what do you not have control over? And kind of let them explore that for themselves and see where those lines are for themselves. Yeah, I think that's very important to realize, you know, the the, the last clause, the wisdom to know the difference is very mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We get confused. We do get confused about that. We feel powerless in times when we have power, and sometimes we try and change things that we really can't change. So, absolutely, I agree. We need to we need to really see the difference. Okay, number six is seeing thoughts as thoughts. Hmm. You know, I, I'm tempted to say this is one of my favorite sessions, but I think I said that about all of them. <laughs> this is a fun one. What we do. Um, is we have uh, just an exploration both through discussion and through meditation in what thoughts actually are and what role they play in the relapse process and just in our lives in general. And so the meditation is uh, focuses on observing thoughts. So we ask people to imagine that they're sitting by a stream and watching the thoughts go by, like leaves on the stream just passing by. And every time they notice they get caught up in a thought or get sort of carried downstream, they step back out and sit on the bank and observe the thoughts going by. Um, And this is pretty radical for most of us. Most of us are sort of living inside our thoughts as though they were all true and they're reality. Uh, And when you can learn to have that sort of metacognitive perspective, you see that thoughts are just thoughts and they happen all the time. You know, and they're kind of out of our control oftentimes, what pops into our head. We often don't have a lot of control over that, but how we relate to it, we have a tremendous amount of control over. So observing thoughts, you know, you may have the thought of, oh, I can't do this. You know, okay, well, if you believe that thought, that can get you into a lot of trouble. Whereas if you see, you know what, my mind is telling me right now, I'm having a thought right now that I can't do this, that may not be an accurate reflection of the truth. So we're trying to kind of separate, you know, and a, a, a meditation teacher that I've worked with um, describes it as being caught up in the TV show versus sort of sitting back on the couch and watching the TV show and realizing that all the thoughts going on in our head are sort of a show and we can either, you know, get very engaged in them and get all wrapped up in the drama or we can sit back and go, huh, look what, look what my mind is, is trying to tell me right now. And then um, we we sort of extend that to how how does this play out in people's lives in terms of relapse. So specifically, like if there's a lapse, you know, if someone is trying to maintain abstinence, let's say, and they have a drink, what are the kind of thoughts that come to mind immediately? You know, and people typically have thoughts that are, you know, like, oh, I screwed this up, I can't do this, I might as well just keep drinking, all those kinds of thoughts. Uh, And when we can recognize those as thoughts, then we have some freedom to say, you know, that's that's my mind spewing out thoughts. That's not necessarily the truth. I can still respond in a way where I have some freedom. Well, I also 
thought that the cognitive behavioral approach also often had this metacognitive element mm-hmm. to it where you stood outside your thoughts and looked at them yes. instead yeah. of being controlled by them. So it seems a commonality there. Yeah, and this is why I think these two approaches, you know, they're often sort of pitted against each other, cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness, and I think they go together beautifully. I mean, there are some differences where at cognitive behavioral therapy, you might notice the thought and write it down and look at the um, the evidence for it and against it and kind of evaluate the content of the thought, how true is this thought, what might be an alternative thought, whereas in mindfulness practice, we're really just saying, oh, just recognize it as a thought and let it go. Um, so it's a little bit different in how it's approached, but I think that the the end is is the same, the intention is the same, which is to realize that we have these thoughts that come into our mind that are not necessarily accurate reflections of the truth, and we need to be aware of that. Okay. We're still recording into the archive, although streaming has stopped, but uh, okay. this will be recorded and archived, so we can continue for a few more minutes. Um, Wonderful. Next- Section seven is self-care and lifestyle balance. Mm-hmm. So we kind of start uh, in the end of the program looking more. We've been really focusing on high-risk situations and mindfulness of you know practice, and um, and we kind of start pulling out in session the last couple of sessions and looking at how can we build a lifestyle that is conducive to maintaining both mindfulness practice and whatever treatment goals, whether it's moderation or abstinence, that a client might have. So we start looking at the role of support. Um, do people have the support they need? And if not, what can they? how can they build that? And we also do a, an exercise that I, I really uh, appreciate that we took from the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy of Zindel Siegel's where we have clients just write down their activities in a typical day and look at what their day is like in terms of uh, what activities are nourishing and what activities are more depleting and how can they um, kind of find that balance and realize when they're getting depleted by their day-to-day life. Because, of course, depletion leads to you know poorer choices and less resources to make skillful choices. So really start looking at kind of the overall structure of people's lives and what changes they might need to make to support their goals. Okay, and last session, session eight, social support and continuing practice. Mm -hmm. And this kind of continues along uh, the lines of session seven. We spend some time um, looking at what people can do. You know, we've up in in the previous seven weeks now, we've offered a lot of different practices as a way to sort of a menu of options, like, you know, try all these, see what practices are going to fit for you in your life and make this your own program, otherwise you won't continue to do it. So we spent some time um, letting the clients talk about what's worked for them and how their practices, how they've kind of made it their own and what they intend to continue beyond the the eight-week course. Um, And we also have some just some time for, you know, reflection um, on the course and what the experience has been like for them. And we do uh, the same exercise, the body scan exercise that we did in the first session so that they can kind of feel maybe the differences and how their mind may have changed and how it may be behaving a little bit differently from, from how it did in the first session. We also, in the last uh, couple sessions, focus on a lot on compassion. Um, as I mentioned before, there's sort of two parts to this tradition of meditation. One is wisdom or, or seeing clearly what's happening, and the other is compassion. So we have an exercise that we do, a meditation that we do in the last two sessions 
that's really about um, just basically wishing yourself well and wishing others around you well and coming from a place, again, of, of more heart rather than reactivity. Okay, it's about time for us to finish up now. We want to thank you okay. very much for being our guest tonight, Dr. It's Sarah Bowen. Thank you. And everyone, tune in next week. Next week the show will be on Wednesday instead of Thursday, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Our guest will be our guest will be Dr. Sars Maxwell, who is from the Chicago Recovery Alliance. And we haven't booked a second guest yet, so we may or may not have one. But thank you, everyone, and good night.